redeemed he paid all my debt when he died for me he paid all my debts, the pure Lamb of God. On the cross he died and said, Now it is all done. On the cross he died and said, Now it is all done. <coughs> the heavenly throne he left to redeem mankind on the cross his blood was shed the spear pierced his side he paid all my debts the pure lamb of god on the cross he died and said now it is all done on the cross he died and said now it is all done righteous works of the law could not save mankind only through your cross O Lord salvation is mine he paid all my debts the pure lamb of God on the cross he died and said, Now it is all done. On the cross, he died and said, Now it is all done. <coughs> you, the blameless, took my blame. You, the sinless, bore my sin. Your blood was the price that opened the paradise he paid all my debts the pure lamb of god on the cross he died and said now it is all done on the cross he died and said now it is all done Very early Sunday morning, before the dawn light appears, Jesus is risen, declaring victory, no more defeat. Jesus is risen, declaring 
victory, no more defeat. Resurrection is my song. Resurrection gave me life. Resurrection made me strong. Jesus, my Lord, is alive. Resurrection made me strong. Jesus, my Lord, is alive. Jesus is risen in glory, heaven and earth sing and praise. And the angel told the story, he is risen as he said. And the angel told the story, he is risen as he said. Resurrection is my song, resurrection gave me life, resurrection made me strong, Jesus my Lord is alive, resurrection made me strong. Jesus, my Lord, is alive. Mary Magdalene was looking in the garden for her Lord, while Jesus himself was telling her to go and spread the word, while Jesus himself was telling her to go and spread the word resurrection is my song resurrection gave me life resurrection made me strong jesus my lord is alive resurrection made me strong jesus my lord is alive all the disciples were praying they were really in great fear when mary came to them saying he is risen he is not here when mary came to them saying he, he is risen he is not here resurrection is my song resurrection gave me life resurrection made me strong jesus my lord is alive resurrection made me strong jesus my lord is alive while they were in the room jesus christ himself appeared my peace i give to you and my peace with you i leave my peace i give to you and my peace with you i leave resurrection is my song resurrection gave me life resurrection made me strong jesus my lord is alive Resurrection made me strong. Jesus, my Lord, is alive. But Thomas did not believe what the disciples had seen. So Jesus again appeared, showing him the place of the spear. 
So Jesus again appeared, showing him the place of the spear. Resurrection is my song. Resurrection gave me life. Resurrection made me strong. Jesus, my Lord, is alive. Resurrection made me strong. Jesus, my Lord, is alive. Sons of God, hear his holy word. Gather around the table of the Lord. Eat his body, drink his blood, and we'll sing a song of love. Allelu, 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 alleluia. Brothers, sisters, we are one, and our life has just begun. In the spirit we are young, we can live forever. Sons of God, hear his holy word, gather around the table of the Lord. Eat his body, drink his blood, and we'll sing a song of love. Allelu, 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 alleluia. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So we've, we've reached the end of the series about the Ten Commandments. Um, God willing, today we're going to um, talk about the Tenth Commandment, which is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So what does coveting mean? What does it mean to covet? Like jealousy, wanting what is another person's, right? Wanting what is another person's. And not just wanting it in the sense that you are angry at that other person, but it's a lack of contentment with what we have, right? We are not, we are not happy with what we have, so we're always desiring more. And so here in the commandment, it's giving some examples. Like you could neighbor, you could covet a house, you could covet someone's wife, his servants, his possessions, anything that is your neighbor's, anything that belongs to another person. We desire it for ourselves and we want to attain it. Now, we all have goals and things that we want to attain. 
So like you might see someone who has something and you'll be like, oh, that's a nice thing. I wish I could have that. And then maybe we go buy it for ourselves. That's not necessarily coveting. That's just saying that there is something that I can obtain for myself that I wish to obtain and I obtain it. Right. Coveting is like um, is more about like I am I'm jealous and I am angry and I'm not happy with what I have. And maybe I will try to obtain what is someone else's, uh, even if it doesn't belong to me, even if um, I have to commit some sin to it to to achieve it. Right. It's uh, I place such high value and emphasis on obtaining that I'm willing to do anything to get it for myself. So how does covetousness begin? So this is the only, and this is interesting, this is the only of the Ten Commandments that is regulating an internal feeling or thought rather than an outward action. You know, we had said before that the Ten Commandments are primarily about actions. Like when it says, do not steal, do not lie, do not commit adultery, do not kill, right? All of these are outward actions that we commit in the world. And, and God is saying, don't do them. Of course, in the New Testament, Christ took these things and he internalized them and he said um, no uh, killing is not just the physical killing of another person but it's hatred like when you feel hatred towards someone it's like you are committing murder with him in your heart or when you are lusting it's like you are committing adultery in your heart so he took the ten commandments and he applied them in a more spiritual way for us in the new testament to understand what is like the precursor of sin so b before the the outward action of sin there is some internal um negotiation some in internal thoughts and feelings that are happening inside of me and and then those lead to the outward sin but even the internal actions are also sin but of the ten commandments this tenth commandment is the only one from the very beginning that's regulating some kind of feeling some kind of thought some desire that i have because someone who is coveting isn't necessarily stealing right someone who is coveting isn't necessarily doing anything they are all in their mind they are coveting this in itself was sin in the old testament through this commandment god penetrated sins to the roots in order to uproot them meaning the 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 the, the source of sin the reason behind why we commit sin is found first in the mind and in the heart rather than the action adultery begins with the bodily lust stealing with the lust to possess or the lust for money lying with the lust of justification or plotting for something and murder with the lust of revenge or some other lust leading to it and if the man fights lust and conquers it he will have conquered all sins so again the word lust here is used not just to mean like the sexual lust but the lust is in the desire for something any desire that we have can become so strong so as to consume us so as that we become fixated on it and we're willing to do anything to attain it, even to harm another person, okay? This is what we mean by coveting. The best way to confront lust is to escape from it rather than engaging in a struggle where you may de be defeated. And this is one point that we often wrestle with in a foolish way. We imagine ourselves able to conquer. We imagine ourselves able to defeat lust. And so we toy with it. We toy with the possibilities and we think to ourselves like, no, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing because I haven't committed a sin. But the precursors of the sin and the meditations of it are maybe starting to happen in our mind. But we, we, we still keep moving forward, right? We still keep moving forward until some point where it becomes like the point of no return. 
right? Like you, we're already so far gone in the process of desiring something, talking, wanting to obtain it, that at that point there is no amount of self-control that's able to prevent us from going all the way. It's kind of like you know you're you're running toward a cliff, right? And if you stop yourself from the running toward the cliff early, then you've saved yourself. But if you say, you know what, I'm gonna stop right at the edge, right at the edge. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep running toward it, but right at the edge is where I'm gonna stop and I'm not gonna fall, right? But what's gonna happen? You have too much momentum, right? Like you have too much momentum in everything you've been doing so far that when you get to the edge, no matter how hard you try to stop, there is no way to stop, and you're gonna find yourself just falling over. Before scoring a victory, your heart may become polluted with lust. St. Paul also said to St. Timothy, flee. Remember, this is St. Timothy is a bishop. Okay, he's a bishop. And St. Paul is saying to him, flee youthful lusts. Like, don't, don't fight them. Don't, don't put yourself in a situation where you are bombarded with them and then say, you know what, I'm strong enough to, 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 um, to resist it. No, he says flee. Right, flee away, run away. And, and sometimes this is the only way we can save ourselves from falling into all kinds of trouble is that we run away. We just stop. We don't give ourselves the opportunity to sin because we look at ourselves and we see, no, I am, I am like, I'm broken. And there is no way that someone who is broken like me is able to be strong enough to resist lust. So I will not even try to fight. I'm just going to run, not even give myself the opportunity to fall. Lust does not give up until it is fulfilled. Escaping from it is the better way. Why should you engage it in a struggle or discussion? Right? Why do we discuss it? Why do we, why, why do we give ourselves a chance to negotiate with it? The more space you give it, the more slack you allow it, and the more you communicate with it, the stronger it becomes. Because when we have an object of our desire, whatever that object is, if we feel like it's sinful, if we feel like there's something wrong with it, but we try to justify why it could be good, why my desire for it is good, why my intentions are good, why the actions that I'm taking, even though they're getting me closer and closer to that cliff, they're okay because I'm in control and I'm not going to fall off the cliff because I see the cliff and I'm not going to allow myself to fall. We, we negotiate with it right? We communicate with it. We, we, we see how, how is it I can get as close as I can. From the communication stage, it moves on to excitement, right? The reason we are communicating with, with lust is because it excites us. There is something about the object of our desire, the thing we are coveting that excites us, that we really want it. And we, even, even though like we, we, we really, really want it. We don't maybe admit this to ourselves. We say, we find other reasons to justify my actions, right? You say, well, you know, I needed to do this or I needed to talk to this person for this reason. I needed to be in this certain place for some other valid reason, right? But in reality, the thing that is driving me is my, my, my desire for something, my lust for something. From this excitement to inflammation and then to fulfillment, right? It, be, it escalates. This desire escalates more and more and more until I find myself, like I said, running toward that cliff, unable to slow down, and I just fall off. You gradually move on from thinking about it to getting attached to it, to being led by it, to fulfilling it, to repeating it, to becoming obsessed with it, to being enslaved with it. 
right? This is the process. Maybe the object of my desire starts just in my mind. I'm just thinking about it. That's a nice thing. I wish I could have that thing. But then when we keep allowing ourselves to think about it, we start to find ourselves attached to that thing. It's like, you know what? I can't live without this. I need this. This is something so important to me that I have to have. And then we start to be led by it, meaning this desire begins to lead our actions. Why is it that I do certain things? Is because of the desire. I find myself not in control of myself anymore. I begin to take actions because of my desire. And then I begin to fulfill, meaning maybe I do it once. Maybe I take it once. Maybe I experience it once. Okay? And I think to myself, well, you know, all I want is once. Once is enough. Once I have it one time, it's good. Right? But then what happens? Well, no, it's never enough to have it once. You want to have it again. Right? And so you, you try to obtain it a second time. Okay? And then after the second time, you want to obtain it a third time. So now it's being repeated. So then it becomes an obsession, meaning I can't stop thinking about it. I need it. I want it all the time. And it's something that even if I have to commit whatever sin to attain it, I will keep doing it. Okay? And then finally, to be enslaved. To be enslaved is that I can't stop thinking about it. I'm all, uh, everything that I do is just based on the desire to obtain this. And I'll be willing to lie and to cheat and to hurt others and to, to do anything in order to obtain it for myself. Maybe we see this progression in someone who is like on the path of drug addiction. You know, first it starts out with thinking about it, getting attached to the idea, being led by it, beginning to fulfill it. And after once and twice and three times, it becomes an obsession. And then finally, I'm completely addicted and I can't stop. I can't, I can't control myself anymore. I'm completely not in control of myself. People may resort to wrong ways to fulfill their lusts, to lying, deceit, trickery, or maybe more than that, maybe even murder. In some cases, people will kill to obtain. So you think about like King David. What did he do? He lusted after Bathsheba and he wanted her. And he took her for himself. But there was a problem. The problem is, is that she is married. So what do we do? Well, he concocted a plan. The plan was, is I'm going to kill her husband. But I'm not going to kill him directly. Because if I say, oh, I'm going to go kill the husband of the woman I have an affair with. Well, no, no, that's very bad. Like who of us could, could say, see ourselves that way? No, no. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to place him on the front of the battle lines. People die in war. Right? People die in war. I'm going to place him in the front of the battle lines. Maybe he dies. Maybe he lives. It's not my fault. Right? So easy to justify what King David did. Because he's sending in a whole army to war. And yes, definitely there's going to be some people that die in that war. So is he even at fault in his own mind? He's thinking, am I even at fault for what I've done? Who is going to be in the front? Someone's got to be in the front. Right? So even the way that he approached it, Right? He, he, he was hiding from himself. He didn't want to even admit to himself the sin that he was committing and what he was doing and how wrong it was. But he was able to use his authority as the king in order to manipulate things to get what he wanted. While at the end, my conscience is clear. Right? Too bad. You know, too, too bad he died. It wasn't my fault. I didn't kill him. Somebody else killed him. And actually, not only that, but he he told he told the, the people in the army to put him in the front and then to like let him do the thing on his own like you know like like don't 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 be don't support him so much just let him let him take the lead right lust is insatiable 
When a person grows weary of fighting against lust, he is deceived into saying, it is better to satisfy this lust so that I may quell this longing and get relief. When a person struggles with some wrong desire, some, some covetous desire, long enough, then the devil begins to say, you know what, wouldn't it be easier for you if you just obtain what it is that you want and then find rest? Because what you are struggling, the struggle that you are struggling all the time is tormenting you, right? It's tormenting you. You're, you're always fighting it. It's, it's, it's so exhausting, right, for you to be fighting this all the time. So the, 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 you know what the solution is? Just get it. Just get it. And then you know what? Not only are you going to have it, but you're going to be at peace. You're not going to be fighting it anymore, right? This is the temptation. The thing with lust, though, is that it is insatiable. It can never be satisfied. No matter how much you obtain of it, the desire for it only increases. It doesn't decrease. That moment that you obtain it, you feel like, I have the object of my desire. But very soon after that, your body, your, your mind, your heart wants more. And, and not only wants it again, but wants more than the, f than the time before. Because again, like now I have this, so now I want something extra. I want more than what I have. This is the nature of the human nature. But the Lord, when he spoke to the Samaritan woman, he says, whoever drinks of this water will, th will thirst again. Right, like the, the, the human natural water that the Samaritan woman was going to obtain for herself from the well, whoever drinks of it will thirst again. Right? No matter how much we drink, we will be thirsty again. This is the nature of anything according to the flesh. Even the good things, like even the natural and good things, nothing wrong with drinking water. Right? But what's interesting is that a person who drinks too much water all at once, you can die by drinking too much water. Right, like you're trying to satisfy the needs of your body by giving it the maximum amount of something that it desires, but once you give it too much, it'll kill you. But if you give it just the right amount, you'll want more of it again. And this is the thing that differentiates between how God meets the spiritual needs versus the physical needs. This is a key difference between the physical need and the spiritual need. The physical need is, t is, is, is always comes back. It is never satisfied. Whereas the spiritual need in God can be completely satisfied. When people say, how is it that we're going to go to heaven and we're going to be content living there for eternity with God? Because you will never get bored. Because you will never need anything else. Because your desires will be completely fulfilled and satisfied. So there is no need for anything else. It is a completely different type of need. The spiritual need compared to the physical need. When one becomes thirsty, one drinks only to become th more thirsty without end. When a person pursues lust, he finds pleasure. And pleasure invites him to another pursuit, and the story never ends. Right? The story never ends. And certainly with King David, you see how it escalated. It started out again with him just seeing this woman uh, while he was on the roof of his house. And then he had a desire for her. And then it escalated to what? Go ask about this woman. That's the, the thing he did next is he told some of his, his officers, his servants, he says, go ask about this woman. And then they told her, told him who she was. And then he said, go bring this woman. Okay, he brought the woman. And then he slept with her. And then it's like, okay, well, what do I do now? Well, um, we have to take care of her husband. Right? He said, like, maybe from the first look that he looked at her, he never thought, I'm going to murder her husband. He never thought that day when he was on the top of his house that something was going to happen like this and he was going to murder her husband. This never occurred to him. But each step that he took in this process kept escalating until it reached the point where he was making decisions that was so uncharacteristic of King David. Like nothing like the King David that we know at this point. 
He was like almost out of his mind because all he was thinking about was how do I satisfy my lust? Satisfying lust does not save a person from it, but increases it. For instance, if a person lusts for money, the more he amasses it, the more he longs for more. If a young man is promoted, he longs for further promotions. I remember when there was like the housing crisis in 2008 and you know a lot of people lost a lot of money and there were people that somebody had a billion dollars and he lost half of his fortune. So he only had $500 million. And he was so upset that he committed suicide, you know, because he only had $500 million. Maybe to most of us, it would be like, I would be very satisfied with $500 million. I would not feel sad about having $500 million. But to this man, he saw it as this was devastation. Like his whole life is ended now because he only has $500 million. You know, how can we understand that? Because this is, this is the power of the human desire. That when we attain, right, how hard is it for us to let go of what we've attained? How hard is it? Think about your job, okay? Let's say you, in your job, you were demoted and you lost, say, $20,000 of your salary. You would be very upset, right? But there are people who make far less money than you that they would look at you and they'll be like, how can you be upset that you lost $20,000? I wish I had the salary that you now have and I have none of it. How, how would we justify it? Well, no, I'm sad. I'm upset. I, I used to have this standard of life, and now I have a lower standard of life. But to someone else, that lower standard of life that you have now is unattainable to them. You know, so, so high it's unattainable. So what's the difference? The difference is not with the material thing, because the material thing is the same. The difference is how we view it, right? In your estimation, you see that the, what you have now is subpar. What you have now is little. But to the eyes of another person, the same thing, they see it as riches, you know, as a step up. So what is the difference? The difference is in the mind, right? And this is the, this is the idea of covetousness. A person who is covetous will never be content with what they have and will always look for more no matter how much they attain, no matter how much they attain. And so it is a perpetual state of suffering because you are always wanting more. You are never satisfied with what you have, and you always believe that thing you have yet to attain is the answer to all your problems, is the thing that's gonna make you happy in your life, it's gonna solve everything for you, because once you attain it, everything will be perfect and great. N not realizing that the moment you attain it, because inside your heart is the spirit of covetousness, you will lose interest with it very quickly, and all you are looking for is, again, the next thing. In adultery also, when satisfying one desire, one longs for the following one. Adam had all the trees in paradise except one. He was not satisfied but longed for that one in particular. You know, like all the trees in paradise, God says you can eat from all of the trees. Every single tree you can eat of, there was only one tree that was off limits and that's the tree that he couldn't control himself not to eat of, right? This is why I say, you know, because some people will ask, like, what if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned in the garden? What would have happened, right? And then I say, you know, eventually I would have been born and I would have sinned. Like, all of us have this sin. We can't blame Adam and Eve for this. This is inherent in all of us, this desire for more, the desire to take what is not allowed, right? Because we are, like, discontent, not content with what we have. This is very human, right? It's very wrong. It's, it's, it's according to our sinful nature. Ahab, King Ahab, he owned many lands, 
But there was one land in particular that was next to his castle that was owned by a man named Naboth the Jezreelite. He was a very poor and simple man who had this vineyard in his family for generations. And when Ahab came to him and said, sell me, um, sell me your, 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 your land, and Naboth said, no, I don't want to sell it. And so it says about King Ahab, who is the king of Israel, it says about it, him that he went into his room crying and he was sad because he couldn't obtain the, the, the vineyard that he wanted for himself. And then Jezebel, his wife, came to him and says, why are you sad? He's like, oh, because I want the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite and he won't give it to me. And so she arranged a way for him to be killed so that he could take it for himself. This is, again, covetousness. You are the king. You have, you have everything you can imagine. You have everything, right? And this one small piece of land is the thing that's going to make you so sad and distraught and, and go sit as in depressed like a young child crying in your room, right? Because, because, of, because of that? Like, again, that, what is it saying? It's saying, like, the power of this covetous spirit that when we have it, we are unsatisfied with anything. No matter what God gives, there's always something more that I wish that I had. David had seven wives, and yet he was not satisfied, but lost it for another one, who was Bathsheba. Solomon pursued the road of satisfaction to the end and said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. You know, King Solomon, he had the, the most resources of anyone, right? And he went down this path of, like, fully indulging himself in every possible way. And he says about himself, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Like, I gave myself everything. Everything that could be attained, I attained for myself. And he had the resources, and he had hundreds of wives, okay? But he said what in Ecclesiastes, after he had this experience, he, he, he came to himself, and he said, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Right? No matter how much I give my eyes, my eye is not content with what I've seen. It wants to see more. No matter how much I give my ears, all of my senses, my senses are still unsatisfied. This is intrinsically part of the human nature, that we are unsatisfied with what it is that we have been given. And we have to fight against it through the Spirit. Through the Spirit, we can learn contentment. We can learn to be content in God, that God is the only one who can really bring full contentment. Do not therefore think that satisfaction saves you from lust. Nothing will save you except self-control, and the best way is to flee from it. So some people think, again, that if I obtain the object of my desire, then I will be freed from this suffering of desire. But actually, the only way to be freed from the suffering of constantly desiring what is not mine is to learn to be self-controlled. Learn self-control. Learn to see the good that God has already given you. Learn to be thankful and grateful for the things that God has already given you. And then you will not desire anything else. And then you will be truly free from this suffering, this covetous um, feeling that haunts us, that makes us feel that we always want more, or regretting what it is that we did not receive. Joseph, as a bachelor, conquered lust by chastity and escape. And David, the husband of so many, was conquered by lust when he allowed himself to satisfy it. Meaning, if you were to think that those who have more would be more likely to not covet, this is the perfect example. King David already had many wives, and yet when there was another woman that he desired, he went after her and he fell into lust with her. Joseph was a man who had no wives, right? He had no wives. He was a single man. And yet when a woman made advances at him, he says, what, how can I do this great wickedness in the sight of God? And he ran away, and he did not toy with the idea. 
right? Even though he had no other wife, like he had, like you, you, you can't say it's because he had another wife that he was able to to fight against this lust and temptation. No, he didn't have. King David did, and yet that didn't help him, right? So it is not what it is that we have that is going to help us to fight against lust or or covetousness or this desire. It is only found in God. It is only found in finding our satisfaction in God and not in the physical world. What are some types of lust? In 1 John 2.16, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In Galatians 5.17, the flesh lusts against the spirit. In verse 24, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and its desires. The pleasure attained through the crucifixion of the body and its lust is one where a man feels the loftiness of the spirit. This is why in the church we focus so much on asceticism, right? Asceticism is fighting against the natural human desires, even the good desires, like food. We fight against them. We, we, we say, you know what? I will not give my body everything it desires, not because the desire itself is wrong, but because if I can control my desires, then I will not be mastered by covetousness. I will not be mastered by lust, right? And then I will be happy. I will actually feel joyful because I will not be so attached to the things that I cannot have, being miserable, like King Ahab, who was miserable because he did not have the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, even though he had so much. So even though maybe some people see fasting as being a type of, like, like something to be avoided, something we don't like, we don't like the fasting seasons, because in the fasting seasons we deny ourselves the things that we like, but actually it is in those times that we ensure for ourselves and we grow in our self-control so that our lives actually become much more fruitful, become much more happy, that we are able to actually be contented with the things that we have and not always seeking and desiring more. The lust of the flesh might be for adultery, food, or enjoyment of sight, hearing, or smell. Esau fell into the lust for food when he craved the lentil stew cooked by Jacob and sold his birthright for it. Can you imagine how much Jacob, uh, or Esau, whenever he, he was hunting, he came back from hunting, he was so tired and exhausted and hungry. And so Jacob was there making a stew. And Jacob, being the deceiver that he was, he didn't just give his brother the stew, but he said, I'll give you the stew, but you have to give me your birthright. Birthright meaning, like, the birthright is what is given to the firstborn son. It means that his inheritance is going to be double the portion of Jacob's inheritance. That is the birthright. But he didn't care about it. He said, I'm so hungry in this moment that I could die. And I don't care about my birthright. What is it to me? What does, again, that say? Like, how is he mastered by his stomach and his appetite that he was willing to give up his whole future, his whole status as the firstborn son, just for that stew? This is a lust of, of for the food. Likewise was the craving of the Israelites when they wept. So they, the Israelites, after they had been freed from slavery in Egypt, they were wandering in the desert. And they became tired of eating the manna, right? They, they didn't want to eat manna anymore. They were sick of the manna that God is bringing them, the, f the bread from heaven every, every day. So they said, what? Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, right? They forgot the fact that they were slaves in Egypt. They forgot the fact that they were crying out to God in suffering and pain and misery in Egypt, because they were slaves and they were being to f forced to work unfairly and, 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 and that they were dying, right? They forgot all of that and they remember the cucumbers, you know, the onions. That's what they remember. They desire those things that, that fill their stomach and desiring the meat now in the desert. 
How is it that we completely lose our rational mind whenever we are so desiring and coveting something that and become so fixated on it that we are willing to do anything for it that everything in our life looks upside down, right? It looks completely upside down. I'm willing to make the worst decisions possible for the sake of satisfying one desire because I think that that desire is going to fulfill my life, but it's completely a lie. It's completely a deception. The Lord gave them meat but struck them with a very great plague and many died. There is also the lust for money, for possession or property, as King Ahab craved for the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. So the Lord warned us, you shall not covet your neighbor's house nor anything that is your neighbor's. Collecting many possessions may be a form of coveting. So some people, they, they like to collect many things, right? They collect, like to collect many things. And it's not wrong in and of itself, but whenever we take pride in what we have, whenever we are proud of the possessions that we have, whatever type of possession that might be, we have to ask ourselves why. Like if, if, if these things were to be taken from me, how important is it for me? Like how devastating it would be for me for like my rock collection or whatever to be lost, right? So that, that's something to keep in mind. There is also the lust for being honored or becoming famous, the lust for positions and titles and the lust for greatness in general, as well as for adornment and beauty. Coveting greatness might take various forms, such as a person who buys a new car every time a new model is released. You know, someone who always has to look a certain way, always has to be given a certain type of honor, always has to be recognized by other people in a certain way. This is a type of covetousness, a covetousness for rank and recognition and position. Another example is the fall of the devil. It says in Isaiah 14, speaking about, this is Satan speaking. He says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Maybe the devil is the greatest example of covetousness because he was created as the most powerful being that God ever created. More, more powerful than Archangel Michael. Like Lucifer, right? It says about him that he was the morning star, right? He was the, the highest rank, and yet despite that, there was one thing greater than him, and that is God himself, and he couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand that there was something greater. Again, maybe all of us would look to him and be like, man, if I, if I was like an archangel, right, like, like that would be like the pinnacle of, of achievement, right? But he had it. He had it, and he, didn't, he wasn't satisfied with it. Right, he, he he rebelled, and look look at the result. And that's the thing is like, we chase after um, covetousness, right? As 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 someone who is going to the slaughter, someone who is who is giving up everything in order to chase after that one thing that is the object of our desire, and then the consequence of it is we lose everything. We lose every. Look what Lucifer lost. He he lost he lost his position, his rank. He he became a demon condemned forever to destruction and, and suffering, right? Because he desired the, the throne of God, even though God had given him so much. One of the most dangerous lusts is the desire to destroy, an example of which is found in the devil against humanity. His desire was to destroy them. So the Lord said of him, he was a murderer from the beginning. The lust of revenge falls under the same category. So this is a, a desire to harm, right? A hatred, a desire to harm another person. This is also a type of covetousness. How do we overcome covetousness? A person can overcome such lust by the spirit of renunciation, by feeling that he is a stranger in the world, meaning we are seeking not to be attached to anything or to anyone. 
if I if I if I work on not being attached to anything in the world, then I will have no desire for anything. And the only thing I will be desiring is God Himself, who gives Himself to us in abundance. He, g- he gives Himself to us without limit. So the thing that I will be seeking without limit, I am offered without limit. And and as I said, the spiritual needs, they don't have this bad side effect of being like insatiable. No, in in Christ we can be fully satisfied. We can be fully um, filled. All is vanity and grasping for the wind, and the world is passing away and the lust of it. So if we always remember that the world and all the desires that we have in it are temporary and are not going to fully satisfy us, and that even when we attain them, you know, even the joy that we have at attaining the objects of our desire, we should it should be tempered. You know, it should be tempered. Like a person, for instance, who's getting married, uh, marriage is a good thing. But don't think that that marriage is going to satisfy y- your entire life. Don't think that now that you have uh, a husband or a wife, then that means that <laughs> you're set for the rest of your life. No. Like, like, like that person is not going to be able to satisfy you in the way you think, right? So, so don't be attached to anything. The only thing that can bring us truly that satisfaction is God. Always think of the afterlife. Remember that the real life that we are to live starts after this one. And everything we're doing here is just like a sandbox. You know, it's just like we're playing around until we get to the real life, to the real world. Love of fellow man. Because when I covet something, oftentimes it will harm another person for me to obtain the object of my desire. Right? Think of the people who are being harmed because of my desire. That if I were to truly obtain what it is that I desired, who would be harmed as a result? Strive for contentment. Try to be thankful about what it is that you have. If, if we think and meditate on what we have and truly be thankful for it, then the desire for other things will wane. And then finally, giving. When I give of my things that I have been given and I share with others, I will see actually that I have far more than I imagined. And there are many people who don't even have a fraction of what it is that God has given me. And so again, I should be thankful for what he has given. So this is the end of the Ten Commandments. Um, It's been a long journey to get here, but I think it is a blessing to study the commandments of God and to follow next week. God willing, we'll start something new. Is there any questions or comments? Yeah. Fleeing means that um, when we put ourselves voluntarily into a situation where we are bombarded with a temptation that we could have avoided. So let me give you an example. Like, Let's say you have like a, a man and a woman who have desire for each other, right? And they're trying to keep themselves sexually pure. There's ways to keep to do that, meaning they should avoid being alone together. Um, there's certain things they shouldn't say. There's certain things they shouldn't do. They try their best to arrange their life such that not to give the opportunity for the temptation to overwhelm them. Okay, That would be an example of fleeing. Fighting in the situation is like, no, I'm not going to put any boundaries. I'm, I'm going to just allow myself to be alone with this person, but I'm going to be very strong and I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight the temptation. But you're fighting a losing battle. So the, the idea of fleeing, which there are some times where fleeing is not possible. Right. Like, for instance, if a person is struggling with, let's say, cursing and you go to work and the people who you're with are cursing, uh, it's very hard to flee because you have to be at work. Right. But in the cases where we are able to flee, we should we should flee. 
And we shouldn't put ourselves in situations where we are bombarded. A person who is struggling with alcoholism should not hang out with people who are drinking alcohol. Not say, oh, I'm going to go and hang out with them because they're my good buddies, but I'm not going to drink. Uh, no, you're, you're going to fail. Don't hang out with them because that's the only way to protect yourself. That's fleeing. Yeah. Any other comments? Okay. Can pray? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We thank you, O God, for allowing us to study your commandments. Help us, O Lord, to imprint these commandments on our hearts, to live them in our lives, not only, O Lord, from the exterior, but from the interior. Help us, O Lord, to please you and to have a desire, O Lord, to follow your commandments and to please you in all things. Teach us, O God, to look at ourselves soberly to see, O oh Lord, the things that are hidden inside our hearts, the things that are not clearly manifest, the things that control us, that lead us, and even enslave us. We thank you for your mercy, O oh Lord, and we thank you that you are the light of the world that illuminates on us to make us to see ourselves clearly. We ask, O oh God, that you come and you take away, O oh Lord, our suffering, the suffering that comes because of our poor choices and the suffering that comes from the choices of others. We thank you, O oh Lord, for your mercy upon us. Guide us and protect us. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God, the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ, the community, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.